Hello, and welcome to the Tuesday, August 10th, 2021 episode of the Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. This is Craig W. Hurst, Emeritus Professor of Music, podcasting from my music bunker, along with my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music, and I share with you what has currently caught my interest, old, new, outdated, and everything in between. Even old music is brand new if you have never heard it before. The universe of music is a vast one to enjoy. From my discussions, you might find something new to you and of interest to expand your own musical universe. I currently receive no compensation or motivation of any kind from any recording label, recording artist, or estate of any performer or composer dead and gone to discuss their music and or recordings. Now with that out of the way, Welcome to my musical universe. My guest for today is Terry Landry, an esteemed mainstay of the recording studios of Los Angeles and the concert stages of the world. He is a recipient of four Grammy Awards, including Album of the Year and Country Album of the Year, for his performance on the Dixie Chicks 2006 album, Taking the Long Way, and in 2020, Best Latin Pop Rock Album, La Conquista del Espacio, and Best Latin Pop Rock Song, La Canción de las Bestias, with Argentine superstar Fito Paez. As a specialist in the nuances of many musical styles, ranging from Americana to world music, Terry's deep-throated saxophone sound has made him the choice of the world's most prominent artists, composers, and producers. His baritone sax playing has anchored the horn sections of Stevie Wonder, Natalie Cole, Tony Bennett, Celia Cruz, Sheila E., Lou Rawls, The Royal Crown Review, The Fabulous Thunderbirds, Billy Vera and the Beaters, Jack Mack and the Heart Attack, The Gerald Wilson Orchestra, Johnny Halliday, and Maceo Parker at the 2019 Playboy Jazz Festival at the Hollywood Bowl. Landry is perhaps best known to Latino audiences as a member of the orchestra of superstar Luis Miguel's 2010-2011 world tour of South America, the United States, Canada, Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean. From jazz, country, rock, and R&B to the top artists of Japan, France, Africa, and Latin America, Terry is one of the most sought-after saxophonists in Los Angeles and throughout 
the globe. He has worked with producers Rick Rubin, T-Bone Burnett, Steve Berlin, Ross Hogarth, Joe Harley, Gustavo Berner, Gustavo Farias, Francisco Loyo, and George Witte. Terry's saxophone may be heard on the fabulous Thunderbirds 2005 recording Painted On. The Temptations, soon to be released untitled album, Emmanuel's 2019 album Navidad, Christian Castro's 2018 Mi Tributo e Juan Gabriel, Johnny Halliday's 2008 recording Kanim Figra Hamis, Stephen Burton's recording From the Five, released in 2005, the Gerald Wilson Orchestra's 2009 recording, Detroit, Bill Vera's Big Band Jazz, released in 2012, the soundtrack for the 2000 film, Marilyn Hotchkiss Ballroom Dancing and Charm School, performed by the Royal Crown Review, Jackie Green's 2006 recording, American Myth, C. Blunt's 2008 recording, Chill Hop, and the Generation Pepsi commercial for the inauguration of President Obama and the 2009 Super Bowl. He has also recorded on Soul Meeting, a 2011 release by Jack Mack and the Heart Attack, and albums with Nigerian reggae artist Jerry Jetto, Mangasa, released in 2012, and Illegal Alien, released in 2005. His recordings with Richard Cheese and The Lounge Against the Machine include Toxicity, I'd Like a Virgin, Silent Nightclub, Sunny Side of the Moon, Apertif for Destruction, OK Bartender, Lava Palooza, Johnny Aloha, and Back in Black Tie. He has also recorded with Elvis Schoenberg's Orchestra Surreal on It's Alive and Air Surreal. Hello, Terry. Craig, how are you? You know, I can't complain. It's great to talk with you. Uh, you know, one of the things I've talked to a lot of musicians uh, about over the last year and a half, or well, almost a year since I started the podcast, is that with COVID-19, many musicians have been finding creative ways to stay busy because touring and performing live are largely on hold. So what sorts of things have you been doing for the past few months in lieu of live performing and touring? And the other part of the question is, are studio recordings still happening out your way? Okay, well, that's a, that's a little, uh, second part's a little complicated, but we'll get to that. Um, you know, for the first few months, just like everywhere else, we were just trying to, you know, Helen Keller our way through this thing. Nobody had ever been through anything like this before. So it was sort of the blind leading the blind. And, uh, you know, I'm fairly fortunate because my house is paid off and uh, I've, I've had some decent years so I could relax a little bit about income. But yes, um, I, uh, 
use the lockdown as an opportunity to do all the projects that I've had on the back burner forever. So, um, for example, the, the, the biggest project was to reconfigure my home recording studio. I've had a home recording studio for a long time, but uh, it's been kind of bugging me. You know how you have those, those things, maybe it's your office, maybe it's your living room, maybe it's your garage, have this nagging feeling in the back of your head that you want to do something, but it's a, a major project. Well, I had the time to take on a major project. So I completely reconfigured my studio with uh, really nice equipment. And um, that's the bottom line as far as how I've been making a living during lockdown. I have enough uh, friends and clients who are TV composers, library composers, uh, that sort of thing, mm -hmm. to where I can do uh, saxophone and woodwind tracks remotely. Now, you know, my studio is like most people's home studios. It's just a spare bedroom. It's not like I can fit a full orchestra in here. And the, the audio front end that I have is really good quality, but it's only two channels. So it's not like I can really do much over here except for, you know, tracking my own things. So I've done a bunch of those things. We did actually do a record with The Temptations uh, back in May um, that we did in a recording studio. We had protocols in place. Uh, it was just horns on the session that I did. And it was a very big room. We were all separated by baffles and, and that sort of thing. So there's been some of that going on. Mm -hmm. But uh, I've also um, had the time to pursue some other things. Like I've been uh, a photography hobbyist for a number of years. And uh, as it turns out, I started getting work as a photographer. So I've, I've photographed two album covers, for example, and a few other things. Um, that's really been a lifesaver for my, uh, for my, my, my state of mind, mm -hmm. because when you're unable to get together with other musicians, as I'm sure your listeners can relate to, it's really a big impact on your sense of self, who you think you are, you know, how you think of yourself, that sort of thing. And it's one thing to, you know, boot up some Abersolds and, and, and play in your home studio, mm -hmm. but it's quite another thing to be able to interact with other musicians. So I found that photography um, uses, curiously, most of the same skill sets. You know, you got depth of field, which uh, photographers call bokeh, you know, blurred background. It gives you a sense of space in the image. Well, I call that reverb. You know, there's a, there's a lot of parallels between uh, photography and music. So that's actually kept that part, the musical part of my mind, pretty, pretty sharp. And uh, I live 10 minutes away from some wildlife preserves and that sort of thing. So um, mm -hmm. it, it may not sound like it, but it's a lot like playing jazz because when you go out, you encounter like a bird on a wire or something, you have to respond immediately, just like you're playing on a, in a jazz quartet or something. So it's really kept that part of my mind fairly sharp. And I've 
enjoyed it too. It's a way to get out in nature, you know, and not be around a lot of people. So uh, that's been pretty helpful. Well, you know, I, I, I can tell you, because I know you've posted some of your photographs on Facebook, and they are wonderful. So Thanks. I mean, your, your work as a photographer is really, is really good. I'm, I'm impressed. Well, thanks. I kind of don't really take it too seriously. I think that's probably the secret to it. I have I have one thing in my life already where I feel driven to be better than anybody else in the world. Not mm -hmm. that I've ever even come close, but you know what I mean, the, the pressure that you put yourself under. Uh, and I don't feel that with photography. It's just fun for me. It's a way to yeah. exercise those same creative muscles. But thank you for saying that. Oh, I really, I do enjoy your photographs. You know, it also brought to mind too, I remember when I was, oh, must have been when I was in uh, college, uh, undergrad uh, at, in Idaho. And one year we had Kai Winding as a guest soloist. Oh. And it turns out he was also, he had a side job as a photographer. He did all the headshots for other musicians, you know, as part of their, their uh, promo packs because uh, I forget who it was. Uh, we saw, saw a photograph and it said Kai Winding, you know, uh, photography. Uh -huh. And uh, so I thought that, that kind of brought to mind, but I'll also tell you, I, I agree with you hundred percent. I've been doing a lot of practicing and right. I, my chops are in probably the best shape they've ever been right. in. But the only people I've been playing with have been my metronome and my tuner. Right. And uh, I went to my very first live rehearsal Monday night, this past Monday night. And I think it was weird for everybody because we were sitting there. It was a big band rehearsal. They had a set up in a, in a college band room. We were spaced apart, kind of set up. In, the horns were all set up in kind of a triangle with the rhythm section at the base of, of, of the triangle. And we were all just kind of looking at each other and it just wasn't, you know, people were just kind of weirded out. And uh, I also have a former student of mine who is a uh, blues guitarist in Chicago. And he just started playing out again. And he, he and I were chatting on Facebook Messenger last night. And he said, after that gig, he said, it was great. It was enthralling. It was exciting. It was fun to get in front of an audience again. But he felt like the day after he had PTSD. Uh. I mean, it was just, just because it was a shock. Because, you know, you're so right about musicians that we miss that interaction right. musically, which is not at anything at all like playing by yourself in a practice room or a studio or any of that kind of thing. And uh, so, yeah, I hear you, but I was, I'm glad to hear you were able to still, uh, you know, keep busy doing some recording and uh, also finding that outlet with photography. Uh, well, getting back to the saxophone, talk a bit about your greatest influences as a saxophonist, who inspired or inspires you? <laughs> Uh, I'm laughing because an easier question would be who didn't inspire me. Okay, okay. <laughs> you know. Sure. Um, gosh, you know, I'm a, I'm a jazz player. Um, I'm a session player. Um, 
you and I went to North Texas together, so I'm sure you can relate, but for your listeners that uh, don't have that experience at North Texas, we, uh, you know, we all went there because it's a great jazz school and we wanted to be great jazz and studio players. Mm -hmm. And what we found out once we got there was that there's a very heavy regimen for classical pedagogy. They made sure that we knew our instruments, not just how to create ideas on the fly. And, uh, you know, that's probably the source of, of the largest amount of cursing amongst college students in history is just the, the, the number of jazz students that find out they have to study classical music, you know, but it's really, really good for you, as you know, and as I know. Mm-hmm. Um, so with, with that said, you know, I'm a fan of all different kinds of saxophone players. Uh, Some of them I'm a fan of because of the purity of their ideas or the beautiful story they have to tell. Uh, You know, like a Gene Ammons or a a Ben Webster, guys like that who didn't often play really fast, uh, Coltrane-esque sheets of sound. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also really like those guys, not just for their story and their insights but because of the way they play the instrument because of of uh the amount of of detail that we had to study in school and actually pay attention to our instrument skills the pedagogy so i'm a big fan of a lot of guys just because of their pedagogy and it doesn't mean that they have to be great uh, achievers, you know, great stars. Mm-hmm. You know, there are guys like Sam the Man Taylor, yeah. who I would never want to sound like, but who just makes me roar with laughter when I hear him, especially mm-hmm. on those Screaming Jay Hawkins records. Uh, you know, I can't imagine anybody playing better solos for those records. And it's because of his, yeah, his perspective on life, but also the way he plays the horn, the way he gets the sound out of the instrument. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that being said, a more direct answer to your question would be guys um, that have signature, pure, beautiful sounds. Guys mm-hmm. like Stanley Turrentine, mm-hmm. uh, Stan Getz. To me, there's not much difference pedagogically in, in tone production between a, a Stan Getz or a Paul Desmond approach and a Michael Brecker approach because everybody's playing all, all those names. They're always playing the horn to a, a very high pedagogical standard. Now they might direct their air in a different way. And, you know, I'm not even talking about the, the ideas that they play, mm-hmm. but they're guys that have figured out how to play the, the silly saxophone in tune, which is not an easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. throughout all registers but uh you know style doesn't matter i love joe henderson i listen to joe henderson probably more than anybody gene ammons ben webster uh stan getz uh coltrane of course uh, dexter gordon um just pretty much everything i can get my hands on sure for alto players you know uh 
out here, I do a lot of session work. And so I have to play a lot of instruments. And it's funny because the sort of clicks that I've fallen into are not the, the clicks that I envisioned myself falling into when I moved out here. So I don't do movie dates where I have to play piccolo and that sort of thing. I do double on flute clarinet, bass clarinet, piccolo, but mostly the sorts of things that I get called for, I have to play the saxophones. So soprano, alto, tenor, baritone. Um, so I have influences on those instruments as well. Ronnie Cuber on baritone, unbelievable. Uh, one of the greatest saxophone players, one of the greatest jazz saxophone players of all time, regardless of which voice we're talking about. Baritone, tenor, alto, soprano. He's a marvelous tenor and soprano player too. Um, I'm sure I'm leaving out about a million guys. Oh, Steve Grossman, uh, one of my all-time all favorites. Kind of a, a challenge to me, you know, since you mentioned the influences, the the challenge to me as a as an aspiring solo artist is to take the influences that have been so strong with me and somehow uh, meld them into something that's uniquely me. Yes. So, although uh, he wasn't a saxophone player, one of my largest influences was Antonio Carlos Jobim. Mm. So, when you listen to a lot of Steve Grossman, especially the really crazy 70s stuff, like with Elvin Jones, and you listen to Antonio Carlos Jobim, those are, you, you couldn't imagine more diametrically opposed poles you know, to try and work into your influences. But mm -hmm. I think I have, and I think I have a personal voice because of it. And I don't sound like either of them, but, uh, you know, it's just, it's a beautiful world out there of music. There's so much beautiful music that I feel like I'm never going to hear it all, you know? Well, I know exactly what you're talking about because, you know, I, I, I remember when in grad school at North Texas, sitting in the library. And if you remember the library up on the fourth floor and the complete works of J.S. Bach took up like three or four shelves all the way down. And I had almost a nervous breakdown one day. I don't know, I've never had one. So maybe it's just the closest thing. When I looked at that, because the, the Willis Library would have the complete works of J.S. Bach. And I looked at all that stuff and I said, you know, I'm never going to know everything Bach wrote. And it just freaked me out at first because then, you know, of course, there's all the other music, other classical composers, but all the jazz, all every blues and you know, all the kinds of things. And it, it can just, you know, like I call my podcast the musical universe because the universe is effectively infinite right and this and the and music is like a big uh ocean and if we can consume a few drops you know that might be all we can do in our lifetime but we we know that there's just a, a bunch out there to 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 experience and we never run out of opportunities but i love the 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 uh, point that you made that goes back to something Clark Terry used to say when he used to say first you imitate then you innovate 
And I think he was talking about, you know, maturing as a jazz player and learning licks from listening to other players and then come in with your own. But I also like what you said, and that is listening to different players that then becomes an amalgam of what you are and you are a unique voice just as unique as, as anyone else. As it's like a, a painter uh, mixing different colors on their palette to find just the perfect one that works in the painting that they're creating. Uh, so I, I, I think your answer is, is, is supreme. And I, you know, if someone asked me what were my, I would say, well, it kind of depends because influence in what way, you know, because I like Chet Baker you know, speaking of trumpet players, I like Chet Baker for a whole lot of different reasons than I like Miles Davis or Freddie Hubbard sure. or Woody Shaw or Wynton Marcellus. You know, I mean, there's different reasons. Uh, and uh, and you, I think what you're, if I hear you right, that what you're really saying is that, you know, there's like this infinite stream that we can uh, drink from and uh, we're never going to get it all, but we're going to get a lot. And we're, we should just dig it all, all that we can get and uh, find our own voice. So I, 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 I think your answer is, uh, is very apropos. That's, that's pretty close to what I'm thinking. And, you yeah. know, for me, uh, it's not so much. I don't, I don't listen to, to music as math. You know, I listen to any player or any artist is somebody, uh, well, actually I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, I'm kind of painting myself into a corner, which I, I don't want to do because I listen to a lot of things for a lot of different reasons. You can appreciate the, uh, the uh, abilities of somebody uh, just doing their job on a you know milk commercial or something. Mm -hmm. You don't have to listen to it for art. But when I'm listening to, when I'm listening to music for arts, sake what i want to hear in a jazz player is somebody that has a discernible personal narrative mm -hmm. right and um that's what really messes me up you know there's a uh she's passed away a few years ago but there's a there's a singer songwriter from the cape verdean islands uh mm -hmm. cesaria evera and I don't speak Portuguese, which is her, was her native language. Uh, but no matter what I hear her singing in Portuguese makes me wanna cry. I'm just overwhelmed with the emotion that goes into her narrative. So I think I have a pretty good idea what she's trying to convey, even though I don't understand a word that she's saying. Mm -hmm. And obviously, you know, when you listen to a jazz instrumentalist, you're doing the same thing you don't understand their language because they're not speaking i don't mean the language of jazz but I mean, it's not it's not music of, of lyrics so when you hear uh a joe henderson he's not singing any lyrics but he's sure telling you what it was like to live his life mm -hmm. and it is overjoy uh overjoying overwhelmingly overjoyed What's the word I'm looking for? That's not a verb. Well, no, I, I, I can. I, but it's I, also heartbreaking. I, I tell you what, I heard Joe Henderson live 
in Milwaukee. I forget how many years ago it was now. And it was just uh, himself, a drummer and a bass player. So, I mean, it was very lean, very, you know, kind of stark. But when he played uh, Isfahan by Duke Ellington, because that was not long after his uh, uh, album where he does all Ellington and Strayhorn tunes. I can't, right. I'm going to say that was probably back in the mid-90s. Uh, and when he did that tune, I just went, yeah, man, I can just, It's you're right. It's like telling a story using the musical language as opposed to some other kind of spoken language. And I, I think you're right. I think that's really what puts across a, a you know, a, a good jazz player. Uh, one of the things I was doing while we were, uh, were chatting, I just happened to check my, my latest analytics for my podcast. And I noticed about 8% of my listeners are college age. So I have two questions for you. What uh, that are kind of related? One, how does one achieve success in the recording industry as you have achieved? And then, do you have any tips for young aspiring musicians who want to do studio work like you have done? Oh boy, those are good questions. I have to think about that for a second. First of okay. all, first and foremost, learn everything, take everything seriously. You know, the uh the skills that I put to use on Grammy winning projects are no different than the skills that I use in little acoustic trio projects at a restaurant. You know, it's the same skill set. Yeah, there's, you know, I, I've been on tours where you're playing for 60,000 screaming people, and there is a little bit of a different energy that you have to protect, uh, not protect, project, versus the kind of energy you project in a little acoustic trio club setting. But in terms of musically, you know, it's, it's the same thing. So first and foremost, I would say, learn your instrument, learn it well, learn really good pedagogy. The people that do well in studio work are, fantastic instrumentalists. They're not people that necessarily have a story to tell. They're not necessarily the, the, uh, the people with the deepest personal experience. What they can do is they can do the job. If they get called, you know, I've never worked a, a, a movie date for John Williams or Jerry Goldsmith or somebody like that. But um, the people that do that will work for John Williams one day and maybe Paul McCartney the next. Mm -hmm. um, so you really have to be able to play your instrument well, in tune, have it sound good. You know, that sounds really silly to say it, but mm -hmm. bottom line, do you sound good? You know, or, or when you record yourself, do you have to make excuses? Do you say, oh, well, the microphone is kind of, that's not really what I sound like, or, uh, you know, it's kind of emphasizing the, the break between the notes. You know, the microphone doesn't lie. They can color your sound, and that's why it's important. If you have a home rig, you want to have a good front end, good microphone, good, good preamp, that sort of thing. But uh, 
you have to ask yourself, do you sound good? And you need to be brutally honest with yourself about that. And a lot of aspiring young session players never seem to be able to ask themselves that question. There's a, I find in uh, younger players, one of the most common things that I hear is guys that can play circles around me, for example, they have unbelievable technique. And, you know, jazz isn't so important if you're looking for a, a studio career. So I won't address whether or not these younger players have a unique discernible personal narrative in their playing, but they can play fast. They can play unbelievably uh, accurately, great articulation, that sort of thing. But how do they sound? And a lot of the younger players that I hear today, um, they don't sound so great. You know, maybe they're using a lousy uh, instrument or maybe they just haven't paid attention to the, the pedagogy of the instrument. But, you know, if you listen to some of the, the great records in our history, by our, I mean, guys like you and me who are side men mm -hmm. um whether it's whether it's to the the biggest stars of all time or whether it's to like a local sinatra impersonator who hires a full big band if guys like us listen to the great recordings of those genres you know some of the great capital records that mm -hmm. frank sinatra did the level of musicianship in those albums is not the kind of musicianship that I hear coming out of younger players. So I would recommend first and foremost that they, uh, these young guys really learn not just how to play and not just how to play pedagogically correct and with pedagogical strength, but pay attention to what should be obvious. Do you sound good? Mm -hmm. How does Keats Herford sound playing lead alto on those, you know, Sinatra records? Can you do that? I mean, I ask that question to myself all the time. I hear some of these great, great classic records or even, you know, uh, a slithery alto sax part on a, a film noir soundtrack. And I go, oh, that was cool. Can I do that? And I'll, I'll go and try and, you know, dissect that and, see what I can do. And if it means I have to further refine my airstream or my equipment, then so be it. And I think that is really common to all successful session players. And certainly there are a lot of session players that are a lot more successful than I am. And they do that even better than I do. They dissect whatever it is they have to do and do that, analyzing from the, the, the great masters. Sure, sure, and and there's and there's a lot to learn, I think, from those, like you mentioned, capital uh, recordings, because I mean, they that, that was some of the best uh, studio players uh, around. I mean, uh, and and Sinatra, of course, uh, would have insisted on hiring the very best, and uh, so yeah, I agree that that's uh, that's an excellent uh, tool that we need to follow in listening. Yeah, you know. Uh, I was talking to Wayne Shorter one time, and uh, he gave me a great piece of advice as mm -hmm. a younger guy, and I'll pass it on to, 
the the younger listeners of your audience. Wayne Shorter told me, he said, you guys, and by you guys, he meant people of our generation, musicians mm -hmm. of our generation, mm -hmm. younger than his generation. And he was talking about playing jazz, not studio work. He was just mm -hmm. talking about becoming a great jazz player. He said, you guys will never be as good as we were mm -hmm. because you don't have the environment. Mm -hmm. He said, when I was coming up, we played all day, every day. Mm -hmm. You know, there were places to play. Every club on every street in America had mm -hmm. live music. And mm -hmm. we would go from club to club. We would put in four hours at a, at a, a bar or a restaurant and then make an after hours jam session and go till the sun came up. And then we might go over and hang with friends in his living room and, and, and play jazz before our gig that the next night. He said, we just played all the time. And you guys, you know, younger players today, uh, just don't have that opportunity. So, he, you know, he wasn't trying to discourage me by, by saying that. He was just uh, stating a matter of fact. And it's even more true for, for today's younger players than it was for me when I was younger. And Mr. Shorter was was bracing me with his wisdom. So I don't look at that as bad news. I look at it as just the truth. And you have to factor that in. You have to make it happen for yourself and understand that you're not going to have the same influences as those guys that are on the Frank Sinatra records. But you still have to step up to the plate and learn how to do it and get good at it and be able to do it in one or two takes and uh, be somebody that they want to call back, that they, they want to rely on. Yeah. You know, this, the second part of, of my answer to your question about how to get session work really has to do with your, your personality. You have to be the kind of person, first of all, you have to bring something to the table. You know, they need reliability. They know you're going to be there on time. They know that you're going to spend their money wisely you know you're not gonna take eight hours to get one take uh because time is money in the studio mm -hmm. um you also have the responsibility to play the music of a composer or an artist the way they want it and even better I mean, the key to being a, a great session player or a more successful session player is that you want to be able to play an artist's music better than what they had mm -hmm. imagined. And so it's, 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 it's almost a, a matter of course when I do a session. Sometimes you just show up and you've got an experienced producer, experienced artist, they know what they're doing, they know what they want, the red light goes on, everybody does their job, and boom, you're, you're, you're in the midst of a beautiful, beautiful day. Mm -hmm. But uh, there are other times when you have more inexperienced artists and young players are going to come up against this, especially when you uh, are first getting started and in the early parts of your careers. You're gonna, you're gonna have artists that are on their way up 
and they don't know um, what they want as well as you do. Like say you're a, a trumpet player, um, you know all the trumpet isms, mm -hmm. right? That the great trumpet players do, but your artist who's maybe not even trained as a musician, it doesn't speak the same language. And right. you know, I've seen I've seen tons of session players uh, uh, bust the artists on that. They don't wind up having good careers because they expect the artists to to speak their language, the language of the classically mm -hmm. trained musician, which is just dumb. Don't be that guy. Yeah. Um, but uh, usually they rely on us to to give them something. Uh, better than they had in their imagination. It's one of my one of my pet sayings. To do good session work, rule number one: you have to sound at least as good as the MIDI mock-up. At least, and if you're not adding something to the track that a MIDI mock-up can't do, if you're not adding a special refinement, then you're kind of cutting your own throat. You're not going to have a very long career. So it's a matter of course, when I do uh, recording sessions with young artists or obscure artists that uh, we usually have that conversation. They maybe give us a chart, maybe not. They tell us what we want, what they want. And when you can perceive that there's something else that they're going to want, you have to be able to graciously say i'm here to do what you want mm -hmm. i'm here to give you what what you're looking for let's do it the way you just said first but i have a suspicion you're going to like it a different way mm -hmm. and usually the artists are are grateful for that kind of input i'll give you an example i was doing an artist uh album in December of 2019, and it was a young composer from Chile. I do a lot of Latin American things. It's kind of my secret weapon. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, we had a young artist from Chile, and he had written a, a song that was sort of an earth, wind, and fire, up-tempo funk thing with, with horns. And he had asked me to um, contract a horn section. Um, so usually the way we do these things for a, a funk horn section, we usually get three guys. We get a trumpet player, a trombone player, and a saxophone player. And then we track multiple parts a piece. Mm -hmm. That's really the standard sections. There's one of each, and then we double track. So I'll go in with alto, tenor, and baritone, or sometimes just tenor and baritone. But usually there's, there's two or three tracks each, and then we double those. Well, um, this guy, this artist had told me that the tune was an earth, wind, and fire sort of tune. So I thought, well, for my trumpet player for this session, why don't I just hire my friend Bobby Burns, who plays with earth, wind, and fire, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Kind of, kind of a no-brainer. And, uh, between him and myself and uh, I think I had Eric Jorgensen as I usually do on the trombone on that job. Well, 
It was a fast 16th note chicken picking kind of funk line that was written. And um, Bobby, our trumpet player, asked me, he says, so Terry, are we gonna are we gonna swing this line? And the artist was in the engineer's booth and he got on the talkback mic immediately. And he said, no, 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 this is funk. This is not, this is not swing. I said, yeah, that's not what he meant. You know, uh, let's, we're gonna give it to you two ways. We'll give it to you the way you've asked, which is just all duple spiels, 16ths, uh, staccatos, that sort of thing. And then we'll swing it the way Bobby had in mind, which is the way, you know, those horn parts sound, those Jerry Hayhorn parts sound on Michael Jackson records. They're not swung with a triple feel, eighth note or 16th, that's, that's not it. It's just you, the way you phrase it, the way you ghost some of the notes. So instead of a lot of times, then then do that, you know, just swing harder when you ghost notes like that. That's what Bobby had. And uh, so we did it both ways. And, you know, the composer, like immediately when we played it the way that we thought it should be, he said, yep, you guys are right. Thank you. That's why I hired you. <laughs> I mean, listen, it's, I'm not unique in that. All, yeah. all successful session players have that. So uh, I'm being rather effusive, I guess, in answering your question. But the question was, you know, advice for young players that want to be sure. session players. Um, to encapsulate the moral of that story, it would be work with the artist, be cool. Make yeah. sure they know that you're there to give them what they want, but also know that you might know what they want better than they do. Give them the option, be cool about it, and make them seem like the genius for hiring you. Yeah. I, I think, yeah, I, you know, from the other side of that, I've interviewed uh, over the past uh, nine months, a number of singer songwriters uh, who, you know, have told me like, okay, all I've taken into the studio is the very basic framework of how I want the song to go. In other words, basically a melody, uh, chords, and lyrics and and then she said and then they've said uh, not she's because there's been some he's too uh the studio guys the studio players and they're not all guys i but all the studio players really work magic and i said i i would always ask them a question i said well then did you ever go into the studio with one of your songs and have it come out on the record completely different than you originally conceived it. And he said, yeah, you know, because the studio players would come up with just some uh, incredibly great ideas and we, you know, kept it. So you, you speak the truth about, about the artists, uh, you know, needing that sometimes wanting that uh, and, uh, and helping them achieve ultimately what they want, which is a good recording. Yeah, you got to sound better than the MIDI mock-up. Otherwise, you're not going to have a career. Yeah, as, what, as go, what good are you if you can't sound better than a machine? To hire you. Yeah. Well, you sort of have alluded to this next question somewhat in uh, what you've already said, but uh, you've recorded a number of different styles 
pop, rock, reggae, country, jazz, soul, R&B, you know, how, how does playing the saxophone, uh, say, for example, on a jazz recording differ from playing on a country record or a reggae record or a rock record or any other style? Is there is there any kind of insight you can give us there? Well, that's a good question. The, the short answer is yes, the, the styles are definitely different and you have to pay attention to what's going on. Um, but it's kind of a difficult question to answer beyond that. Um, again, in terms of advice for the aspiring young session player, um, my best advice would be uh, the overview would be, of course, listen to all different styles. Um, and you don't have to love them. There's certain styles of music that I can't stand and I make a lot of money playing on their records, but um, that doesn't matter. When you listen to iconic records in any genre, I think the important thing to do for the aspiring session player is to be analytical about what they do. So for example, on a lot of uh, white rock band, the, 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 the classic uh, guitar-based rock bands, you'll find that the drummer plays the backbeat a little behind, stylistically. Um, and on roots music, blues, uh, R&B, soul, the horn sections usually play a little bit behind. That more, was, more laid back. Right. That was one of the hardest things for me to, to get under my, my hands was that laid back feel on, on roots music. Because, you know, going to college, you pride yourself on being able to play, you know, with a, a, a click track like sense of precision and you, value that because it has so much to do with the accuracy that you prize so much and guess what roots artists don't want that mm -hmm. and if you're playing like in the middle of the beat you're not right but by the same token beat one usually will be in the middle so you have to kind of listen and analyze the the stylistics of of any particular genre. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the bands I play with, Billy Vera and the Beaters, is like that. It's a it's a roots music. We play Billy's original compositions. We play very few tunes that weren't written by Billy Vera. And my old buddy and North Texas alumni, uh, Lon Price, is uh, the guy that got me on that gig. And he's got that style down and it took me years of standing next to that guy to figure out exactly where he's going to put stuff but i mean now we play together like hand in glove but i'm, I'm embarrassed to say how long it took me to to figure that style mm -hmm. out and it's completely different than say you know playing in a horn section behind Celia cruz where mm -hmm. if anything, it's on top, you know, yeah. and you have to really pay attention to that. One of the biggest challenges I ever had 
was uh, playing on the first recording that I did with a Nigerian artist named Jerry Jetto. It's a magnificent record too. I'm really pleased with the way it came out. It's called Illegal Alien. It's from, I don't know, about 15 years ago, maybe. Uh, Jerry Jetto was the bass player for King Sunny A Day and okay. Manu Dibongo and Fela Kuti and a lot of the other uh, big Nigerian artists of the, the 70s. And his own style of music is political protest reggae. And uh, me and my partner, Bill Churchville, magnificent trumpet player, used to play lead with Tower Power, Tom Jones. He and I do a lot of things together. Bill and I got called to go do this record with Jerry Jetto. It's Nigerian protest reggae. <laughs> and it's like, how do you, how do you know what to do? Yeah. And, and to boot, when we got there, there was a producer and an engineer, but the artist wasn't there. So mm -hmm. we didn't really have much guidance. And we listened to the music, you know, each, each tune pretty carefully before we even attempted some takes. And then once we started doing takes, we'd stop and request playback and say, hey, uh, Bill, did you notice, you hear the bass player, we didn't know the bass player was the artist on this, but um, you hear how the bass player does the opposite of what we do? Like if, if the bass player is playing four eighth notes in a row, well, those of us that are, are American jazz and, and, and roots players, we're gonna play those do da do da. But this bass player would do that the opposite. The last note was the only long note. Oh. Da, 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 da. And, we, hmm. and you have to pay attention to that kind of stuff in order to make sure the note lengths match up on the album. So we we kind of uh, picked our way through it until we were happy with the way we were lining up with the, the tracks. Mm -hmm. And then about halfway through the session, the artist came in the studio and he, he called us into the booth and, uh, you know, he gave us ear to ear, Cheshire cat grin, and big hugs. And he said, you're the fifth horn section to play this album. He hmm. goes, I've hired all the top guys in town and I've had to throw their tracks away. He goes, I don't know where you guys learn how to play Nigerian reggae, but you <laughs> sound like Nigerians. And it's like, well, we learned it from listening to you mm -hmm. right here, right now. You just pay attention to it. So. Uh, I've since done several records with that artist and he does even different styles now. We did an African High Life uh, record. I can't remember the name of that one. It's really, really a great, fun record too, but the style was completely different. Um, you know, you get good at certain styles and you get good at... Um, sussing out what an artist's personal style is by the way they sing or 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 play or mm -hmm. something and you do your best to just try to fit into that i can't you know i'm not really explaining it very well i guess no, I, I i i think i understand what you're getting at and and i would summarize it you got to have big ears uh, that's a great way 
That's a you've great got point. to have big ears and you've got and to I, have critical listening ears. And, and I guess the, the main thing that I want to say about it, regardless of how poorly I'm phrasing it, the thing is, that's what's going to make an artist call you back and mm -hmm. refer you to other people. Because uh, you're asking what I would tell young players how to how to get session work. Well, you have to build a network, and sure. you know we don't have agents. I don't know of anybody that even has a, a service anymore. I mean that was a big deal in the '60s and '70s, but I don't know anybody that has a service. Mm -hmm. You, we are hired based on word of mouth only, mm -hmm. and Artists and producers talk to each other um, and you get a reputation. Mm -hmm. And just about every tasty morsel I have on my on my resume has come from just a referral from somebody that I've either worked with before as a sideman or as a producer. Mm -hmm. um, I mentioned earlier that, that the Latin market's my secret weapon. You know, I toured for a couple of years with Luis Miguel. And uh, probably most of your listeners aren't familiar with him, but he's, you know, the, one of the, the, the highest selling Spanish language artists of all time. He was mentored by Frank Sinatra, and he did a, he did a duet with, with Frank on, on Frank's last album, Duets 2. Um, but this guy's really, really good. I think he's in his mid-40s now. Mm -hmm. But, okay. it, you know, this guy is unbelievable. And Americans don't uh, know him because he only sings in Spanish. Right. He speaks perfect English. He just hasn't, he's chosen not to go into the American market because he didn't want to go on the Tonight Show and be interviewed and all that kind of stuff. He's a very sure. Private you know, uh, the couple of years that I was on tour with him, we were the second highest grossing act in the world. Wow. Only you two did better business than we did. They did a lot better business. They did three times the business <laughs> than we did. So we were a distant second. But um, it's it's incredible following this guy. Has. As well, wow. he should. He's an incredible artist. And the fact that, that uh, I've been with him uh, is sort of like a, a gold card in the Latin music industry. Sure, so sure. I, I do Mexican Walmart commercials. <laughs> okay. I, do, I do Mexican children's cartoon soundtracks. I do all kinds of, of Latin America. It's not just, you know, here in Southern California, the biggest Latin market, of course, is Mexican. But uh, I get stuff from South America and Central America too. Some from Nicaragua, oh. from Chile, from Argentina. The uh, one of the one of the last things I did before lockdown was uh, an Argentine artist named Fito Paez, and we did that in one day, I think, at Capitol Records, and. Uh, he swept the Latin Grammys last December with that yeah. album, you know, uh, mm -hmm. Argentine guy. And it was hilarious because he had the whole horn section there. His rhythm section was in town with him. So when we did the recording session during a lunch break, 
he and producer and rhythm section and horn players were all having lunch together and all any of those guys wanted to talk about was Luis Miguel hmm. you know they wanted to ask me about what it was like working with Luis Miguel sure sure because he was you know, really big stuff yeah yeah he you know he still is they've got a series about his life on Netflix right now but um it's kind of funny because these guys are are, are looking at me like that with great big eyes like I'm some kind of a god dude I'm just a saxophone player okay you know yeah sure played a couple of nice gigs in my life but um you know they're really looking at me with magic and wonderment in their eyes and uh that's been really gold for me because I get all kinds of calls for the Latin market. Wow. And that's a big market. You know, 90% sure. Craig of the Western Hemisphere speaks Spanish as a primary language. Mm -hmm. You know, and and uh fortunately it's been working for me. And I and yeah. I and I love it. I love I love that kind of music. It's yeah it's not stupid usually. You know, like well, there's a lot of times you get called to play some really dumb music, but not so with the Latin artists. Yeah, it's, it's always very, it's always exciting stuff. Yeah, I I agree. Well, you know, you you you've mentioned uh, Luis, but uh, I'm wondering, you know, you've had uh, a, such a wonderful career, uh, both as a, in recording and touring. Can you narrow it down to what is your most memorable experience? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's not really music. Okay. But uh, but it was on the stand. All right. Um, it was with Luis Miguel. Okay. <laughs> I forget the name of the resort town in Argentina where we were staying but it was a few hours drive from where our gig was. Um, we had a couple of days off in this resort, which was nice because we needed it. And then we had to get to work. And the venue was, I wanna say three hours drive. So we had to load up the vans and drive up into the Andes mountains and for hours and hours and hours we saw no sign of civilization at all mm. nothing nothing i mean you're really deep in the in the andes mountains and then all of a sudden in the middle of nowhere there's no city there's no you know uh, metropolitan infrastructure to support it but Somehow, out in the middle of nowhere, there is this giant, modern, Jetsons-looking soccer stadium. Enormous. And it's really cool architecture, too. It looks like a giant spaceship or something. Wow. And uh, it, it's, it's really hard to convey just how remote this, this place was. And because it was so far from where we were staying, you know, we couldn't go back to our hotel rooms after sound check. We're kind of stuck there. So we do our sound check, we do our dinner, 
we get dressed and later on in the evening, eight, nine o'clock, something like that, it's, it's showtime. And the routine is they leave you backstage forever and ever while everything's getting ready. And then they drop all the lights, full mm -hmm. blackout. And there's a call that says band on stage. So we load up the stage, crowd goes nuts because they know the show's about to start. And we're talking like 40,000 people at this point. Wow. And uh, so we get on stage, put our in-ear monitors on because the show is on click. Um, we're not, uh, uh, we're not on auto-tune or anything like that. We're just on click. The show is run on click. So we put our in-ear monitors in, strap our, our horns in. And we're out in the middle of nowhere, way up in the mountains. So there's no lights. There's no man-made lights anywhere. And you look up at the stars, and it's like being out in the middle of the desert. It's, it's, it's really striking how mm -hmm. remote it is. But because it's that dark, and it was a moonless night, because it's that dark, the only light at this point for miles was the glow of the two MacBook Pros on the second keyboard's stand because <laughs> he runs he runs the show from there. The, the, the show is on click to, to Pro Tools. So he's got a Pro Tools rig. And that's all the light you have is this this glow from these these two laptops. And as it happens, these two laptops were were shining up on me right mm -hmm. so it's like everybody for miles is looking at me and and i gotta tell you you know the guys in this rhythm section are our brothers for one thing three of them are brothers and fourth mm -hmm. bass player is a childhood friend of theirs so these guys it's like being on the road with the comedy act mm -hmm. and, you know they're on the talkback system so we're hearing everything they say on our in-ear microphones and it's hilarious it's like the funniest comedy you could ever imagine but anyway uh our second keyboard player who has the the laptop he says hey man everybody's looking at you the, the lights are shining on you he says you should do something and i said do something what do you mean he goes you should, you dude you should do something so i said okay so i thought about it for a second and what I did was like Madonna playing Eva Perone in the <laughs> film Evita, which yeah. I've never seen. I've only seen the trailers, right? Right. I threw both my arms straight up, you know, as if to say, you know, field goal, something like that. Mm -hmm. you know? I threw both my arms straight up. Craig, 40,000 people exploded. They were screaming and cheering. It was like the, the most excited they'd ever been. And, and I'm, in, I'm in Argentina, so I don't know if they're going to shoot me or what. For, for, <laughs> and you hadn't even played a, played a note yet. All you did was raise your arms. Yeah, but, I, you know, they, they might have got that it was a Ava Perón thing and not like okay. that or something. But, you know, they have a saying in Brazil, they say better to lose the friend than to pass up the joke. So I went for the joke. There you um, go. But it, you just, you've never, 
heard cheering like this in your life. And the guys in the band are just crying. There's tears running down their faces because they didn't think I was going to do anything. And I didn't yeah. think what I was doing was that big of a deal. And I really didn't think anybody was watching, but you could really see me from the laptop flight. So they, they uh, after they recovered, they said, hey, man, that was hilarious. Do it again. <laughs> and I did. And, th and there, was a, there was an even bigger response. It probably wow. doesn't translate very well when I'm telling you the story, but it, just the fact that we were out in the middle of nowhere. We could have right. been on Mars. And the, like the doofiest thing I could think of elicited such a uh, response. And it wasn't about me, obviously. It was about the excitement these people were feeling because of the artist that I was there with. Oh, sure, sure, you know, sure. But it just, it just ignited them somehow. It's just, it was a stupid thing. And that's why I liked it so much. Oh, boy. Well, that's a great story. I mean, you know, to hear the roar of the crowd like that. You know, I, I'm curious, uh, Terry, you mentioned uh, in, a, in your message to me uh, earlier today, you've got a gig this afternoon. Yeah. But uh, what are some of uh, your latest or newest uh, projects that you've got planned or gigs that you, you've got upcoming? Well, I have some nice things. I have some things I can't talk about. Okay. Um, but uh, like, or today, you could tell me, uh, but you'd have to kill me. Uh, you know, I don't think I can even tell you. <laughs> Your life okay. is safe, Greg. Okay. You no, know, today, today I'm working with my old buddy Fred Sokolo. Um, a lot of guitar players know Fred's name because he's kind of the gold standard in mm -hmm. instructional books for guitar and guitar-like instruments like mandolin and lap steel and pedal steel. And banjo and ukulele this um, I love playing in Fred's trio because we just do standards um, he doesn't call tunes he doesn't call keys in fact he doesn't remember the keys that he plays the tune in so a lot of times we'll play tunes in different keys what he does is he just starts playing the verse to a standard and that's how we know what we're going to play okay. there's no sheet music it's just uh it's just playing and uh there's also no amplification on those gigs okay slight slight exception he, he does use a little cube amp for his vocal mic but mm -hmm. he plays an old uh resonator guitar it's not a dobro but you could have fooled me it looks just like a dobro i'm sure guitar players want to drive down here and kill me for saying that but i don't know the difference between resonator guitar and dobro but um like the old blues guys played in the 20s and then we have mm -hmm. uh usually jeff faulkner on upright bass and i play tenor on that and we mm -hmm. just play tunes and uh i have quite a number of those things coming up this one is a private party okay uh, but, but we have a few public things uh, next month, I'm back with uh, Billy Vera and the Beaters. We're at Vitello's. It's one of our favorite venues. I love working with Billy. He's one of the great, greatest songwriters of all time, in, in my opinion. And uh, what's the thing I just booked the other day? This, this question drives my wife crazy when people ask me it because I never remember what I'm doing or what I've done. And my wife always has to remind me you know what i've done sure. even in the last week 
because I'm yeah. always just looking forward. Um, my, my wife makes me tell her, so she puts it in her calendar and then she often reminds me. Yeah. Right. No, well, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Huh? I have it in my calendar and I have the, I have the address in my calendar. So all I got to do yeah. is push that and it opens up Google Maps. You know? Yep. Um, what else do I have? Uh, yesterday, I spent the day in the studio here at home mm -hmm. uh, doing a track for one of my uh, producer clients. Um, can't really talk about it too much, but it was like a Stanley Turrentine kind of thing. Okay. Um, you know, I could probably look it up. A um, couple of big band things here and there. Okay. Um, so things know, are but, thing, things are opening up then, and you're getting and you're up, getting you know, busier. There's a there's a lot of pent up demand that's mm -hmm. being released. Um, so, like with Fred's trio, for example, we're playing a lot of weddings. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not a weddings player. You know, most of the people that play weddings in Los Angeles, they work for these giant agencies where they have all the latest. Uh, you know, top 40 tunes on iPad and stuff like that. And I, I, uh, I don't do those. Not oh, sure. Because, not because I, I, I wouldn't, because I, I, I have, but I'm just not in that loop. And, you know, I don't I mean you. to integrate it because some of the best musicians on the planet do those things. And frankly, I'm not good enough to, to do those. Um, but the, the stuff that I'm doing with Fred, people that want a sort of a vintage feel on their on their weddings so we've got like eight weddings over the next month just wow because lockdown nobody was getting married so we've got all set up to me. as mm -hmm. far as uh club dates and recordings it's uh starting to happen mm -hmm. i do have one really terrific composer david izzard who uh, we did half of his Vanity album. It's a big band album of, of uh, originals. We did that at East West, which was a studio that was built for Frank Sinatra. It's one of the, the mm -hmm. greatest recording studios in the world. So when somebody springs for East West, it's a, it's always a, a pleasure. <laughs> Excuse me, because you know it's going to sound good. So I'm doing a double session later in the month for, for David. Really looking forward to that one. He's mm -hmm. got uh, players that are so great, I never see <laughs> on that session. Sure, sure. Well, you know, I'm, that, I'm glad to hear, I'm glad to hear that uh, you're getting, you know, busier again. I, I want to ask one technical question sure. and, and one equipment question, and then, and then we'll kind of wrap things up because I know you got a gig later and you got to right. drive through LA traffic. So uh, when you and I were in school together at North Texas, we both played and studied jazz. So a question I'm going to ask you, I've asked of every jazz musician I've interviewed, what makes jazz unique from other styles of music? Hmm. Well, um, I'm not sure how to answer that, Craig. You know, there's okay. the there's the thing uh, about 
that we touched on earlier about each artist having a unique narrative. You, know, mm -hmm. you can tell a lot about the life that someone has lived mm -hmm. from the way they play a jazz solo. And mm -hmm. although you could say that about the lyrics of maybe a country song or a blues song, um, it's a little bit different mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, once a lyric is written, then it's a song. Right. It's not, it's not improvised the way a jazz solo is. You know, uh, my friend Keith Fidmont said one time about listening to Coltrane. Uh, it was the most profound insight I'd, I'd ever heard about Coltrane's playing. He said that, he said, when I listen to John Coltrane play, he says, I hear the sound of a black man in America insisting on his right to be taken as fully human mm -hmm. in a society that insists he doesn't have that right. Wow. And, you know, I didn't mean to turn your, your podcast into a political thing, but uh, I just thought it was very profound because it's true. When you listen to yeah. certain artists play, you can hear the profound hardships and joys that their life has brought them. And Coltrane's music is overwhelmingly celebratory, I might add. So that's what makes it even more profound to me, knowing that he suffered in ways that you and I never have and never will. Exactly. And still felt joys probably more intensely than you and I ever have or ever will also. And if there's a key to jazz, I would have to say that for me, at least, that's what it is. That's wow. what makes it different from all other forms of music. You know, it's interesting, uh, Terry. I just finished recently reading Isabel Wilkerson's book entitled Cast, The Source of Our Discontent. So I highly recommend it to you. Okay. Because I think what you just described and or talked about in describing Coltrane's music is so true where, and especially when you look at the context of, of what she's written about in that book. Uh, I'm not going to talk, this is not a book review show, so I'm not going to talk a lot about it, but it is really, a, it's a read that will pull at your heartstrings and there are times when you don't know whether you want to cry or vomit. Mm. Because it is about is about a system of caste that exists in our country and it's related to race. And when you talked about Coltrane as a man saying, I deserve when he's in a in a environment that says, No, you can't, his music is speaking that still speaking that for him. I think that's a wonderful way you described it. Well, it's not my way. It's like I no. said, I give credit to Professor Fidma, who's well, one of the greatest saxophone players I've ever heard also, by the way. You know, and then the other thing that we could always point back to also is what Louis Armstrong said, you know, when he, when he was asked, what is, 
what is jazz? If you have to ask, you'll never know. <laughs> I have one favor to ask of you. I have a, a very good friend, colleague uh, at the university, who is also a very fine baritone saxophonist. He's like first call to back up uh, artists at the casino. In fact, I, like I think he already. may have even backed up the Temptations once. Uh, and Mike is, uh, by trade, he is a biologist. He's a, a PhD biologist. And he specializes in, uh, in the study of a particular fish that exists only in a particular lake in Africa. So he's, but he's a real expert in that area, but he's also a, a huge, uh, wonderful baritone saxophonist. And, uh, uh, and he's also a regular listener to my podcasts. And so what I would ask if you would do is talk a bit about the setup you use for your baritone saxophone, since that's what Mike uh, plays. You know, what, uh, brand, what brand model of horn, your mouthpiece, reeds, all the other kinds of stuff that other saxophonists would enjoy hearing about. You know, that's a really, really good question. That's, that's a much better question, I think, than you even realize. Because baritone, you know, most of my money jobs are on baritone. If I'm playing in a trio, playing tunes like I am later today, my favorite horn is tenor. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if, if people don't uh, specify what instrument I'm going to be playing on a particular job, if I'm just going to go somewhere and play tunes, I don't even think about it. It's tenor. That's what I'm most comfortable on. But I'm mm -hmm. most unique on baritone. And you, of course, uh, know me mostly as a baritone player because right. that's all I played at North Texas. I didn't even start to branch out into the other saxophones till I was almost out of school there. And, uh, and I love the baritone. My gosh, I love the baritone almost more than my, such a, a beautiful instrument. But mm -hmm. the reason this is such a great question is the baritone is really unique in that if you can't spend on a really, really top instrument, it's almost not worth your effort. Mm -hmm. The barriers to entry of being a great baritone player are financial. You really have to have a good horn. Now, a million of your listeners are gonna strongly disagree with me, but you asked, and this is my honest answer. If you can't play a, a vintage Selmer, Mark VI, super balanced from the 50s, 60s, maybe even the 70s, you're really gonna have a much more difficult time than any other instrument you can choose to play. Um, it's obviously a matter of choice. You know, I have another instrument. I have a, a, a really nice Yamaha that I've got highly customized that I bought for touring work so that I wouldn't beat up my 1950s Selmers. Um, but in terms of what I do in the studio, the nuances, the, the, the security, of, of uh, performance, you know, how likely it is to, to, uh, to back up on me instead of giving me a, a low concert C staccato pianissimo. I got to tell you, on baritone, you're moving a lot of metal to play 
those lowest notes. And there's a lot of room for error. And the cheaper horns made of softer metals don't seal up well and they go out of adjustment. And uh, I can't tell you how many sessions I get because friends, colleagues will call me up, ask for a suggestion, say, uh, hey, I think I'm going to get a baritone because I can play on a few more records this way. And I'm going to get this cheap Chinese piece of junk. And I go, just don't even bother. And they say, well, how bad can it be? I go, it can be 100% failure. But they usually go ahead anyway, and they're sorry they asked. And then those are the same guys that call me up on moment's notice and say, you know, I'm in the studio and my berry's not working. How fast could you get over here and do this session for us? <laughs> and I'm, I'm not exaggerating. I've had at least a dozen sessions like that from guys that I've told not to buy their, their cheaper instruments. I don't mean to denigrate any of the manufacturers in Asia or, or Germany, and there's lots of room for uh, a difference in taste. My particular kind of playing is best suited for a, a Mark VI with a low A. If you're an outdoor or a tenor player and you only double on baritone, then I modify my recommendation and I tell you to get the same instrument, but without the low A, the C concert. You know, the, the summer low B flat has the same, all the same notes as all the other saxophones. The bore is a little bit different on those and it feels more like the rest of the saxophone. So if baritone is just a double for you, you're usually better off going with a low B flat summer. But um, just the crispness and the immediacy of response of the mid-century Selmers are uh, unrivaled as far as I'm concerned. And all the others, there's just a slight hesitation, a little air grunt sound before each note. So for example, on, on one of my Mark Sixes, I could play a low A pianissimo staccato. I could just go good, 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 good. But on the cheaper horns, it doesn't sound like good, good, good. It sounds like And that drives me crazy. That little delay drives me crazy. Sure. And uh, that's why I play what I play. And mm -hmm. why I recommend that. As far as mouthpieces and reeds, that's even a little bit more complicated because I don't think there's anything good on the market. I don't think there are any truly great baritone mouthpieces on the market. What I play is a lot, a Jeff lot. They're not the kind that are made today, but the kind that were made in the 1970s. And, uh, and I treat my Lawtons like a blank. Um, there's a guy who no longer does mouthpieces in New York who uh, customized my Lawtons for me, put the, the right facing and altered the the chamber, but the, the stock Lawton comes closest to a great jazz and funk baritone mouthpiece for me than any okay. others. Uh, Ronnie Huber plays a Francois Louis, and you know, who sounds better than him? Nobody. 
Mm -hmm. um, I like my setup better than his, but uh, the reverse is also true. Reeds, um, I was one of the designers of the Rico Select Casbins, so I'm partial to those. Those are now owned by Dario, but I have pretty old stock. Uh -huh. um, as, as far as uh, saxophone setups in general, I think players are well advised to go with whatever mouthpiece tip opening uh, is best for playing a three or three and a half read. Okay. And I do a whole like afternoon long saxophone pedagogy lecture that I've done at over 200 conservatories across Europe, States, Japan, elsewhere. Um, but to, to, to summarize it, you know, having worked at a reed company, I can tell you that your best bet is going to be with the three or the three and a half. Spring. Okay. So, you know, I mentioned that you're, you're fortunate, Craig, you're not a saxophone player. So, uh, <laughs> you don't have the, the psychoses that we as a species seem to have, but there's yes. a big thing about, you know, jazz and pop and rock and funk and soul saxophone players that think that you're just not manly unless you play a, uh, a mouthpiece that's just way too open, but the reed is way too hard. But yeah. um, the best advice I could give all saxophone players is pick a three or three and a half strength reed in a brand that you like and mm -hmm. find a mouthpiece that works with that. And you're going to be a lot happier. You're going to get much wow. better consistency. You're going to get longer play life, uh, fuller sound. Um, you're going to struggle with your chops less. I mean, I, I, I could go on for hours as to the, the physics behind why that is. Mm -hmm. But for now, pick a three or three and a half and go play mouthpieces. Okay. Well, I, I think that's, 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 that's great information. And I, and I'll, uh, I'll kind of compare notes with Mike next time I see him. I have no idea what he plays on. I think he plays on a Mark six, but I really don't know for sure, you know, what else he does. And I'll be interested to hear, uh, hear, uh, you know, what, uh, what he has to say, because uh, in comparison, because, I mean, I, I put that question in specifically, uh, you know, for him, because he is a regular listener, and we're good friends and colleagues at the university. So, hey, Terry, I know that you've got to get ready and get going for your gig later. So I'm, I'm going to wrap things up. And uh, first, just by asking if there's anything else you'd like to add or tell my audience. I've got nothing to plug. No. Okay. All right. Well, I just, you know, I try to be thorough. It was, I, I, you know, I, I mean, that's, it's part of having, you know, done a research degree, I guess, is I just try to make sure I'm thorough. So, Terry, I want to thank you for taking time to talk with me today. It has been awesome. And oh, yeah. I, I want to wish you all the best uh, with what I'm sure will be a continued and, and a successful musical future. Well, thank you, Craig. I appreciate it. Thanks for all you do. I think it's great that you put these together. Well, thank for, you for listeners and for students and, and all that. I think it's a it's a great, great, great pursuit.
All right. Well, have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Craig. Talk to you soon. All right. Don't bye. be a stranger. <laughs> Cheers. My discovery composer of the week is Domenico Gallo, an Italian composer and violinist who flourished during the mid-18th century. He may have been born in Venice about 1730, wrote much music for the church, and was known for his violin sonatas and symphonies. Eitner mentioned an oratorio for two voices dedicated in honor of Giuseppe Calasanzio, founder of the Scuola Pie in Venice. The libretto was published there in 1750. Gallo published two sets of six sonatas, one for two violins and continuo in Venice, and another for two flutes and continuo in London. The latter set probably dates from about 1755. An overture by him was published in a miscellaneous set of Se Overture di Pio Stromente, Opus 6, published in Paris in 1758, and his name appears in a collection of marches and airs published in Edinburgh in 1761. There is a manuscript collection of 36 trio sonatas by him and the Marquis of Exeter's collection at Burgley House, Stamford, and examples of his church music can be found in the conservatories of Naples and Bologna. Gallo is notable chiefly for his connection with one of the many Pergolesi forgeries. In 1780, Robert Bremer published a set of 12 trio sonatas attributed to Pergolesi, Pergolesi Opera Omnia uh, version, Rome, 1940. Their title page claims that the manuscripts of these sonatas were procured by a curious gentleman of fortune during his travels through Italy. But even in the 18th century, doubt was cast on the Pergolesian authorship of these trio sonatas by such critics as Bernie and Hawkins. And it has since been discovered that some of them are attributed to Gallo in several contemporary manuscript sources, and the rest are probably his as well. Some of them were used as Pergolesis by Stravinsky in the Pulcinella. As Walker said, they are not markedly Pergolesian in style, but are rather the work of a competent Italian composer writing in the gallant idiom of the 1750s and 60s. Owing to the mistaken attribution to Pergolesi, they may have been quoted in various modern works on form as early examples of sonata form, but this early dating depends on the date, 1736, of their supposed composer's death. A 17th century Domenico Gallo from Parma was cited by Eitner as the author of Trattenimento Musical Sopra il Violoncello. Hook suggested that some of the sacred music ascribed by Eitner to this 17th century Gallo might be 
by the 18th century composer. The All Music Guide lists 14 recordings of his chamber music. In my show notes is a YouTube link to a performance of Gallo's Trio Sonata No. 1 in G Major, performed by members of New Vintage Baroque. That wraps episode number 42. My show notes, along with links to artist websites, recording label websites, YouTube videos of artist performances, are all posted on my Facebook page, The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. Next week, I will be interviewing singer-songwriter Diana Jones. We will be talking about her newest album, Song to a Refugee. Other upcoming interviews will include jazz pianist, composer, arranger, and band leader Jen Allen, Broadway theater pit orchestra veteran and leader of her own jazz group, Bonegasm, bass trombonist Jennifer Horton, and New York City-based jazz composer, arranger, and big band leader and bassist Greg August, and Buffalo, New York-based blues singer, Patty Parks. So don't touch that dial. If you have questions, comments, or a suggestion of an artist, composer, or musical style for me to consider, you may email me at h-u-r-s-t-c at u-w-m dot e-d-u. So, until next time, this is Professor Craig W. Hurst and Carmel the Wonder Dog signing off from the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Have a great day.